this morning, we'll begin reading in verse 9, and we'll be down to the end of uh, chapter 2. Scripture says in verse number 9, but, when we, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all things who through fear of death Deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the um, wisdom that can be gained from it. We ask um, humbly, Lord God, that you would be with us this morning as we open it up and seek to learn from it. We pray that it would not be um, about intellect or knowledge, but, Lord, about wisdom an application, that we would seek to hear your voice, that you would speak not just to our minds, but also to our hearts, and that, Lord, we would leave here uh, different. We pray that if there's someone here that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that you would even now be opening up their eyes and their ears to hear the truth, and, Lord, to uh, come to a place of salvation. We love you. We thank you, Lord God, for bringing us here, and we pray that you would bless our time together in Jesus Christ's name, amen. We looked last week at the uh, previous few verses to discuss how there are times in life where um, our circumstances don't seem to line up with the promises of God. Um, There are times when there are promises that God has made us that... um, as you look at them and you evaluate them and you evaluate your situation, it doesn't seem to match what God has laid out for us. We see that in verse, really clearly in verse number eight, where the Lord talks about how that everything has been put in subjection to us, but that as we look at the world around us, we recognize that everything is not in subjection, um, that everything is not uh, submissive to Mankind. We go back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis where God said to mankind that I want you to have dominion over everything. God made us to be in a place of dominion. And in God's creation, in God's perfect world, in God's perfect economy, in the Garden of Eden, man was dominant. Man was in control. And there wasn't um, all of the things that we see today. But because of sin... Because mankind fell, they chose to reject God and rebel against God. In that that falling and submitting really to the deception of of Lucifer, the serpent, um, man lost that dominion. Man became subject to versus things being subject to him. Uh, Man now is afraid of animals. Um, There are many animals that if you're around those animals, it strikes immediate fear into your heart because you are in subject to them versus them being subject to you. Man no longer has control even over his own flesh, his own desires, his his own uh, uh, control over temptation. Man doesn't have that anymore. 
It was lost when man submitted to Lucifer, to the serpent, and, um, and, the, and yet the Bible still promises us that we will one day have that dominion back. That dominion, that control will be restored. We will be crowned again with glory and honor. Amen. We'll be crowned again with glory and honor. We'll be um, ruling, the Bible says in Revelation 5, on the earth with Christ. Uh, we'll have that opportunity to rule with him. And, and the fellowship that we'll have with him will be unhindered again. And we look forward to all of those things. But while we look forward to those things, we realize that what's going on around us is pretty much a mess. Right? It's pretty much a disaster. And so what the Lord does in these verses is, is he tells us that in these moments where these promises that God makes to us, that one day all of the world is going to be subject to us again, we look around us and we see that we're subject to all of the world, right? He, he tells us that we have to continue to look at Jesus. We have to continue to look to Jesus to, to see the reality that God promises us to see it in, 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 in full display. And, and Jesus was a great display of um, one who was in control. Um, whether he wanted to control the weather, he could step out on the, on the bow of a ship and say, peace be still, and the waters listened to him. If he wanted to control the animals, he would tell an animal to come, a fish to come to the top of the water and give Peter a coin. He, he had control. Jesus Christ was and is and always has been sovereign over all things. And as we, want to, as we want to affirm the promises that God has made to us, we just simply look to Jesus Christ as an affirmation of those promises. And that brings us hope. Because one day the Bible tells us that we're going to be completely like him. We're going to be conformed fully into his image. First um, John 3 and verse 2 says we will be like him. We will see him as he is. And that's the hope that we have. That's what we're looking forward to. That's what we're anticipating. And when the kingdom of Christ comes to, to fulfillment, not just in our hearts, but in this world, all of these things will be made a reality to us. So looking to Jesus is what makes it possible for us to persevere through the difficulties of this life because, we, because as we trust in him, we know that what he has one day we will have as well. One day we will, we will enjoy those things as well. So we're, we're told in these verses to see Jesus, to look to Jesus, who is crowned with glory and honor. And uh, we need to see him as the author and the finisher of our faith. We need to see him as the essence, the fulfillment, and the hope that all of God's promises will one day be a reality for us. And the scriptures tell us that he is the firstborn among many brethren. He is the first fruits. In other words, he is brought in first, but there's an expectation. When the first fruits are brought in, they're meant to, be, to, to define for us what the rest of the harvest will look like. In other words, you bring the first fruits in and, and, and there's an expectation that here's what the harvest is going to be like. Jesus Christ is the first fruits, the firstborn among many brethren with the expectation that there's going to be a great harvesting and that the harvest is going to look just like Jesus. And that's a wonderful truth because that's, he's talking about us. He's talking about you and me, those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. So while we're here on this earth facing all of these difficulties, we must learn, we must discipline ourselves to always keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. He is everything to us. He tells us in Colossians 1 and 18, and he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. In everything, he might be the essence of our lives. He tells us in John 3 that like the serpent who was lifted up in the wilderness, that Jesus Christ also would be lifted up. That anybody who looks to him in faith and believes will experience deliverance, will experience salvation, will experience healing. And we know that the, we know that the healing that is referred to in that context is in this life a very spiritual healing. But we, we, don't, we not only believe in spiritual healing, we believe also in physical healing. 
We believe that there is actually a promise that God has made to us that in, in maybe not in this life, but in the next life, we're going to have new bodies, and they're going to be healed, amen? There isn't going to be any sickness. There isn't going to be any pain. There isn't going to be any suffering. There isn't going to be any disabilities. None of those things are going to exist in the life that we look forward to. So the promise that God makes to us, not just of healing us spiritually, which is super important, if we're not healed spiritually, we don't expect to be healed physically. But it's not limited to being healed physically. The promise of God is that we will be healed completely. Body, soul, mind, and spirit. The whole part of who we are, who God created us to be, is going to be healed. And we see that, we see that expression in Christ. We see what we're going to be one day in Christ the remainder of this chapter, which we'll look at this morning for a few minutes, the remainder of chapter number two, basically defends the fitness, the fitness of Jesus Christ to be looked to in this way, to be trusted. Remember, the context is this. Should we look to angels for our help, or should we look to Jesus for our help? Should we look to the law the angels were the presenters of the law. Should we look to the law to help us in life or should we look to grace to help us in life? These are both, these are things that are being weighed. If you, if you could say that uh, in, in, to define chapter number one and two, these are the things that are being weighed in the balance. Is Jesus and grace and the gospel better than the law and the angels? Okay? And, it, and it's not just referring to salvation. Matter of fact, I believe equally, if not more so, it's referring to life. Is Jesus, is the gospel, is grace better in life? Is it better for me to get through what I'm dealing with today through Jesus, the gospel, and grace, or is it the law and angels that are going to get me through this day? The answer is, is obviously Jesus, but he's going to defend that in the, in the latter parts of this text, and that's what we're going to look at uh, this morning for a few minutes. Our main focus is going to be on one word that is going to be unpacked throughout the remainder of this, of this chapter. It's found in verse number 10. Verse number 9 is the fact that Jesus Christ has died, tasted death for everyone. Um, just a real quick reference. This does not mean that everybody is saved. This is not referring or teaching universalism. Um, this is the fact that Jesus Christ's death impacts everyone in a certain way and is effective for all those who believe. As a matter of fact, um, you could almost take the next verse and use it to define the verse before when he talks about bringing many sons to glory. Okay, the, the impact of Christ Jesus' death is on those who believe, on those who place their, their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't impact everyone. It impacts those who trust Christ. That is um, who the salvation that Jesus Christ brings affects. And anybody who comes to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance experiences that salvation. Amen? It's good to know, isn't it? There's no one that's too lost or sinful for the Lord Jesus Christ to save. No one. And we can preach the message of the gospel to everyone. As a matter of fact, we're called to preach the message of the gospel to everyone in the world. That's what the Great Commission is. He talks in these uh, latter few verses about being fitting. He uses this word here in verse number 10, for it was fitting that he, um, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. He goes on to describe that further in detail throughout the, the rest of the chapter. And we're just going to unpack that in three basic thoughts this morning. Um, every, every good sermon has three points, right? I was reading, reading a book this week and it said, mix it up sometimes. It said, don't just have three, three points in every sermon. So guess what? Got three points this morning. <laughs> I didn't learn my lesson. I'll, I'll get there. Uh, I want to talk to you guys about what, why is Jesus fitting? You think about a puzzle you think about fitting something into a puzzle. You've got a piece that fits right perfectly into that spot and it, and it, and it completes the whole picture. Um, why, why is Jesus fitting? Why does he fit 
perfectly into the situations and circumstances of life? Why is, why is he the one? And, and I want to just unpack that for you this morning, and, and I pray that it will be a blessing to you. God will speak to your heart. Um, it, it, will be a, it will be a flawed presentation because I'm the one making it, um, but I pray that God will, will be able to work in spite of my flaws. Amen? And, and that he'll be able to speak to your heart. That's really what it's all about. It's not, nothing to do with me at all. I'm just a messenger that is in so many ways undeserving of being up here. And, and I just pray that God will, will be able to open your hearts to receive a message from him that he's going to use a flawed presenter to give. So let's look at this this morning. Number one is, is better, a better fit defined. The word here. Um, where, where he says, for it was fitting that he, the word just means something that is becoming, something that is, is, is comely or, or beautiful. Um, this, is a, this is a beautiful thing. It is, a, it is a, a, a something that is becoming to you. Um, you. You hear people say, and I want to try to illustrate it a little bit, it, it'll give you a couple more definitions of it. It means to, something that makes you stand out to make you be prominent or, or conspicuous, not inconspicuous, but but conspicuous, something to make you stand out. It makes you, it, it, it brings something to the, to the, to the forefront. Um, I, I've heard people say this about, you know, uh, I, I have, well, I'm not gonna use my kids this morning as an example, but um, you have blue eyes. Let's say you have blue eyes and, and you wear a blue shirt and it just makes your eyes, makes your eyes stand out, right? Um, and somebody might say to you, man, that shirt really makes your eyes stand out. Maybe it's something else that you've said to somebody. It's like, uh, I, I know there are people who have made comments uh, here, even at the church. There, um, the red shirts that Michael and I bought with the, with the logo on them, those, those shirts really look nice on you. And, and it's something about a certain color that an individual wears, it looks nice on them. And, and the opposite is actually true as well. Some people wear a certain color and they're like, yeah, that really just doesn't really work for you. The idea of it is, is that it fits. There's something about that, that thing that, that they're noticing. Usually it's an external thing. There's something about it that fits with your, with your external uh, um, personification, with you. And, and, and the same thing is true about our, our inside. There are, th- there are certain things that fit with our, with our character. And there are certain things that you see somebody do and you just think to yourself, man, that's just really not, that doesn't fit with them. I'm really surprised that they did that because that doesn't really, that isn't what they, what I thought them to be. And there are certain things that don't fit with people's characters. And then there are certain things that do fit with someone's character. And you think to yourself, well, you know, that's just normal for them. They might, you might be a person that's known for being sacrificial and always giving. And so you, you go out of your way to give somebody a blessing, to give them a gift or to say a kind word to somebody. And, and, you, and that person, and you just think in your mind, you know, that's just who they are. It's just, a, they're, they're just like that. They just like to bless people. They just like to, to say kind words. It's just fitting to them. That's, that's this idea of, of this is a fitting thing. This is, a, this is a right thing. This is a, this is a thing that is a displaying or, or representing the character of God, specifically displaying something about his character that's just fitting. It's just fitting. We know, we know who God is, and so when we see God act, we, we think, that's just fitting for him. There are times that we see God act and we say, let's just, that doesn't seem fitting to him. And, and oftentimes when that's the case, it's because we don't really recognize what he's trying to accomplish. And we'll look at that here in a few minutes. But, but fitting is that idea of just something that fits with you. And for some people, it's negative things. It's not positive things. Some people, you expect them to be inappropriate or, or not kind or what, you just expect that. And so sometimes they'll, they'll say something nice or kind and you'll be like, man, that wasn't, that wasn't like them. That was weird. That was rare. So it's not fitting to their character. It's not fitting to their personality. It's not fitting to them. Being fitting is being something that you expect. Let me give you a couple of words here. The word, the word in the New Testament is used over and over again, and it carries with it this idea 
But there's, a, there's also a word in the Old Testament that also carries with it a very similar idea. And it, it's used um, on a number of occasions in the book of Song of Solomon, where it talks about the beauty of, of the bride and the beauty of the groom and those, those things that are fitting for a, uh, for a glorious relationship. When you think about the perfect relationship, you think about, you know, you think about two, two dating people, right? And they like, they like sit there and they like look at each other in the eyes like unstoppably. And you just think, oh my goodness, this is crazy. But it fits, doesn't it? There's something there about that intimate relationship that um, precedes all of the problems that you get later in life. But there, there's something fitting about what they're doing because of the because of the nature of their relationship. We see that in Song of Solomon over and over again, this idea of this is fitting, it's right. Especially the Song of Solomon, where you might look at Song of Solomon and say, man, this, what he's talking about is a little bit out there. It's fitting, it's right, it's good. Within the confines of marriage, these things are beautiful. They're fitting. Outside of the confines of marriage, they're not fitting. Right? This is the idea that he's using with this idea of fitting. This is fitting in, in the relationship with Christ and in, 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 in his economy. This is something that is fitting for him. He tells us in Ecclesiastes 5.18, he uses this term. He says, behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and to drink and to find enjoyment in all the toil that which one toils under the sun, the, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. It's fitting. It's fitting to work. It's for, fitting to eat and drink. This is the life that we live. It, it just fits. First Samuel, First Samuel 16, 18, one of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehem height, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence. This is that same word fitting. We know that David was a, 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 a beautiful young man. He was a fitting young man. And God was going to use him not because David was fitting on the outside, but more because David was fitting on the inside. So we see this idea of fitting from an external perspective. In our context of Scripture, it's not referring to, to Jesus Christ being fitting from an external perspective or, or how he looked, but it's referring more to his character, his makeup of who he was on the inside, his, his, his integrity, his love and compassion, his all of these things, they were fitting for Jesus Christ to come to the earth and to give his life for mankind is, is fitting. Why is it fitting for Jesus Christ to do that? Because it is in perfect harmony with his character. It is a display of God's character for Jesus Christ to come to the earth and die for mankind's sins. It's perfectly fitting. It makes all the sense in the world when we know God's character. That's what he's saying here. This is fitting. All of the events that are going to follow are fitting for God. They're a display of his character. Remember what Romans 5 verse 8 says, for God displayed, God commended, right? God manifested his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, it was, it was fitting to God's character to send his son into the world to die for us. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. It's about his character. It was fitting to his character to do that. It should be no surprise to us that God sent his son into the world to die for our sins. It fits with who he is. Amen? It fits with who he is. It's a fitting thing. It fits with his character. We want to always... We, the more we know God's character, the more we see things fitting into his character and why he does the things that he does. I've often said, some people will say, you know, why didn't God make salvation through the law? And the Bible talks about um, if salvation comes by the law, then grace is void and grace is empty. God made salvation outside of the law so that it would be by grace. 
Why did God make salvation by grace and not by the law? Because it was fitting to his character. What was God doing in saving people? What was the number one goal of God in saving people? Ephesians 1 tells us it was to display his glorious grace. It was fitting to his character to not make salvation through the law. It's fitting to his character to not make sanctification through the law as well or glorification to the law as well. Matter of fact, what's fitting to God's character is to make much of himself by helping us not make much of ourselves. That's fitting to his character. It's fitting to God. To know what his character is, to find those things that fit to his character, then you see him work, you see him unfolding his character in front of you, and it's a wonderful and marvelous thing. Matthew 3 and verse 15, Jesus says this. This is at his baptism. Jesus says, and Jesus answered them and said, let it be so, for thus it is fitting. It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, it's it's in perfect harmony with God's character to fulfill all things necessary for salvation. He's not going to leave anything undone. Why? Because it is fitting for him to do it that way. It fits his nature. It fits his character. It fits him. Now, how do we know, how do we determine when something, whether or not something is fitting or not fitting? There are some things in life that don't seem fitting, even in, the realm of, even in the realm of Christianity, even in the realm of the gospel. There are some things that don't make sense. They don't seem to fit. And some of it, honestly, the majority of it boils down to us either not, not understanding God's character or not knowing what God's purposes are. When we know God's character and we know God's purposes, then we know what is fitting. But think about these things from a fitting perspective. If you were to look at these things from a human perspective, think about what would you, what would you think? Number one, God becomes a man. Is that fitting? Does that make, does that make any sense to any of us? I, 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 heard, I, was reading, I was reading a commentary this week. He used the illustration of this. What if your dog had a problem? What if your dog had a really serious problem and the only way that you could solve it was by becoming a dog for the rest of your life? Would you sacrifice your humanity to become a dog for the rest of your life? And then he said, the commentary said this, that isn't even close to what Jesus Christ did. Doesn't even touch the surfaces of God becoming a man. Doesn't even get close to it. The Bible tells us God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. As high as the heavens are from the earth are his thoughts from our thoughts and his ways from our ways. Yet he became one of us. He became one of us to fix something that we could not fix on our own. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Not only does God become a man, but a king becomes a servant the rich willingly becomes poor. Second Corinthians 8, 9, the Bible says, for we know the grace of God, that he who was rich became poor, that we became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. We don't understand that. That doesn't fit with us because we live in a world that says, get rich, don't get poor. We live in a world where what fits is to, is to progress, not go backwards. It's hard sometimes to understand what is fitting to God because we struggle with knowing his character and we struggle with knowing his purposes. Once we know his character and his purposes, everything will make sense to us. And in addition to that, it will drive us to live the same type of life that Jesus lived. Folks, listen, one of the greatest problems that we have as Christians today is that we're not driven by God's purposes And by not being driven by God's purposes, we don't see why it fits. When we look at life and we say, that just doesn't fit. We look at our difficulties and we say, that just doesn't fit. It does fit. It fits with God's plan. But it might not fit with your plan. Some other things that don't fit. The innocent 
dying for the guilty. Somebody who died living again, that doesn't fit, does it? A lot of things that Jesus Christ did don't fit unless we determine what it means to fit. So that brings me to point number two, the better fit determined. Look at what it says in our text. He says, but we, um, verse number 10, for it was fitting that he, for whom and, all thing, and, 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 and by whom all things exist. Let's just stop there for a moment. What's, who is he referring to here? He says, it was fitting for him, was fitting for him, for whom and by whom all things exist. He's talking about God the Father in this, in this simple phrase, and he's saying about God the Father is that everything that we're about to read, everything that we're about to capture in this following text is, is for whom? Who is it for? It is for him. It is for, he, he lays it out in one simple captured phrase, all of this is for God. All of this is for God. And until we understand and get a hold of the fact that everything is for God, we look at this world as saying, well, everything is for me, it's for my glory, it's for my comfort, it's for my happiness. We miss the picture. It is not for us. It is for him. It is for his glory. He created us for his glory in Genesis. He is now recreating us in John 3. He's, he's saving us for his glory. And one day he will glorify us for his glory. But folks, listen to me. As a Christian, it is all about God's glory. We must grasp that. If we don't grasp that, we will lose sight of how it all fits together. How does it all fit? How does Romans 8.28, for we know that all things work together for good, how does that fit if my life is miserable? does it fits it fits when we realize it's not about us it's about him so the two things that we need to we need to determine in order to understand what it means to be fitting and let me just read acts 223 you guys are familiar with it just to give you a kind of a uh, an understanding of the sovereignty of god in all of these things the Bible says in Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross was based upon the definite plan, the predetermined plan, the predestined plan and foreknowledge of God. This was God's work. God was the one who sent his son into this world. Yes, Roman soldiers nailed his hands and his feet to the cross, but it was the work of God. God sacrificed his son on behalf of mankind's sin. This is what Isaiah 53 says. He put upon him our sins, and it pleased him to hang him on the cross. This was God's work. This was for God's glory. When we get a hold of that, this was according to his predetermined plan. We understand that, we accept that, and we experience the blessing of knowing that it fits. It fits with his character, it fits with his nature. He says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It's according to God's predetermined plan. Let's look at, first of all, in, in this defining what is a better fit Number one is who is your focus? We looked at it a little bit. We want to remember that if man is our focus, if man's glory is our focus, if man's comfort is our focus, if man's happiness is our focus, it's possible that the law might be a better fit, right? Okay? The law is very good at glorifying man, isn't it? The law basically says do this and then you can be exalted. Do this and good things will happen to you. So the law might be a better fit if your goal is to glorify yourself. Amen? The law might be a better fit. Success might be a better fit if your goal is to have happiness. Money might be a better fit if your goal is to have friends. So, so really what it boils down to is who are you living for? Who are you working for? Who is it all about? Because you'll never understand the fittingness 
of your situation or your circumstances until you, until you identify who you're about. Until you recognize what, you're, what are you, what or who are you living for. In, in many ways, in many ways, if we don't see Jesus Christ or God as our focus in this difficult life, we won't live for him. We won't serve him because it isn't easy to serve him. It's difficult to serve him. Religion was another thing that I put down. Religion might be a better fit if you're trying to promote moralism. Intellect might be a better fit if you're trying to promote self. It's, it's, it's all, listen, at the end of the day, it's, it, it, if we're going to see Jesus Christ, if we're going to see Jesus Christ as fitting perfectly fitting into every situation and every circumstance of life, we have to see God as the supreme purpose. We have to see God elevated in everything that happens. If we don't see him as the supreme purpose, we will not see Jesus Christ as being fitting for every situation and every circumstance that we go through, right? This is why in so many ways in the Christian life, what happens is we face difficulty and we try for a few moments to, to say, God, this is about you, and we try to accept it. But then when it's there for six months and when it's there for a year, we start saying, I'll take care of it, God. You can't handle it. Is Jesus not sufficient any longer? Still sufficient. But he hasn't done what we think he should do because what happens is, is we get ourselves at the point of glorification and not God. What if God says, like he said to the apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. You will have this thorn in the flesh the rest of your life. Is that good? Can we call that, can we say that that's fitting? We can only say that that's fitting is if God is here and we're here. If we're here and God is here, we'll never see that as being fitting. We, we struggle, folks, to see God's, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's interesting how as a church, we're a God is sovereign over everything church, Right? We're a sovereign God here. But when it comes to here, it's a whole different program. God is sovereign, right? It's not just words that you say. It's what you live. It's how you walk, walk through life. Do people see you as a restful person realizing that, hey, God is in control. I'm, I'm not nothing to worry about. I have nothing to complain about. I have nothing to murmur about. God's in control. He's sovereign. It's hard. It's hard to put what, you, what we say we believe. Remember what Jesus said to the, to the people, to the, to the Judaizers? He says, you're close to me with your, but you're far from me with your heart. And we never, listen, we as a church can never get to a place where we say, well, I'm just glad that's not us. Because, my friend, when the Bible also says that when you think you stand, you're getting ready to fall. Who is our focus? Who are we focused on? Who is at the, who is at the, the, who is at the pinnacle of our lives? Who are we serving? Who are we seeking to honor? The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. The redemptive work of Christ, the salvation that Christ brings to us, the death on the cross, all of these things, they are for the glory of God and the glory of God alone. Right? Soli, soli Deo Gloria. To God be the glory alone. It is His glory. The reason why there is one saved person on this planet is not because there was somebody with great value or intellect or, or, or smarts. It is because God said, I will show my glory through them. It is the only reason why people are saved. It is for the glory of the Lord alone. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 to 31 tells us, God hath chosen the foolish things of the world and the weak things of this world and the insignificant things of this world and he says at the very end, in verse 29 through 31, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, 
Note this, because of him, not because of you. Because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Lord, can we not get that? Can we not praise and honor and worship you? Can we not see you as the essence of all things? Can we not bow at the end of the day and say, God, anything good today was based upon your marvelous grace. Thank you. God, help us to be a people that honors him, that glorifies him, not just for our salvation eternally, but for the salvation that we experienced this morning when we got out of bed and came to church. That was God's grace. Ephesians 1, 6 12 and 14, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved so that we may, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession in it to the praise of his glory. The redemptive work of Christ is all God's to God's glory. Our salvation is all to God's glory, not to ours. His sovereignty in planning it, his holiness and disgust towards sin in condemning his own son, his justice in condemning sin, his love in sending his son to take our place, his mercy in not holding us accountable, and his grace in transforming us. God all about him. So the first, the first thing that we use in determining the fittingness is we have to determine who is it fitting for. Is it fitting for God's glory? Is it fitting with God's character? Is it fitting with God's nature? It's all about him and not about us. And then number two in determining it is this. What is its purpose? You'll notice at the end of this simple phrase, he says, for it is fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, the next phrase is very important, in, in other words, here's the purpose, here's the reason for it, here's the purpose behind it, in bringing many sons to glory. What is God's purpose in redemption? It is to bring many sons to glory. You will, not, you will not see that his purpose is to bring many sons to happiness. To bring many sons to wealth. To bring many sons to health or riches. It is to bring many sons to glory. And we know that that is a process that concludes when he establishes his kingdom. And it is something that was necessary for him to die in our place. The redemptive work of Christ's purpose is to save people. It is to save people. That is what the Lord seeks to do. And it comes through suffering. Jesus Christ, the perfect man, he goes over here in, in verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same thing that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus Christ became a man, God became a man in order to pay the perfect sacrifice for man's sin for the sake of bringing you and me to glory. And I'm glad that he said many sons to glory and not a few sons to glory. I think he's gathering a massive number of people in our world today to bring, to, to experience, and to live eternally with him. I think that is very glorifying to the grace of God. That's why he's doing it. He is doing it to magnify and glorify his grace. And he's not doing it for a few, he's doing it for many. Galatians tells us that the son, the children of, of Sarah, will far outnumber, or the, the children of the promise will far outnumber the children of the law or of Hagar. 
He's not saving a few. He's saving many. And he's going to bring us to glory. He's going to bring us to where he is, and not just to bring us to where he is, but he's going to bring us to, to his essence, to who he is. We're going to be just like him. This is a wonderful promise that we look forward to. This is what makes it understandable when we think about why is this fitting? Why is suffering fitting? Why is difficulty fitting? Because he's bringing us to glory. He's bringing us to a state that we're not currently in. Turn with me, if you would, and, and I'm going to close with this, with the a reading of these few verses in uh, John 17. And we'll close, it, we'll close this sermon out next week. And we'll look at, we'll look at next week the display or, or some of the things that the Lord Jesus Christ did that were fitting and why they were fitting ultimately. John 17, verse 12 says, while I was with them, he talks about finishing the work that God had given him to do and glorifying God by finishing that work. And man, praise the Lord for that. That was what made salvation um, for us sure. And he says this, he says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of perdition or Judas so that the scripture might be fulfilled. And he's not referring to Judas being saved and losing his salvation. He's referring to Judas being one of the chosen disciples and then ultimately rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that you cannot lose your salvation. The Bible teaches that no one can pluck us out of the Lord's hands. He says, but now I am coming to you in verse number 13, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I do not speak that you take, I do not ask that you take them out of this world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And these are the things that the Lord is doing in bringing us to glory. He's protecting us. He's guarding us. The phraseology in this, in this, in this passage of scripture is, is twofold. It's like, a, it's like a fence. A fence has two purposes. It's to keep things in and it's to keep things out. This is the work that God is performing in us, for us right now as the people of God. He is protecting us. He is guarding us from the enemy on the outside and he is keeping us, guarding us from going outside to the enemy. He's protecting us. He's bringing us to glory. He promises us in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but I should raise it up in the last day. And this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes on him has everlasting or eternal life and I will raise him up in the last day. This is the promise of God. Not that you will keep yourself to be raised up in the last day, but that he will keep you to raise you up in the last day. This is the purposes of God. And it is, it is his purposes that sustain us each day, not our purposes. It is his plans that cause us to see all things as being fitting for his glory, not our plans. Lastly, Two verses, Ephesians 5, 27, so that he might present us, the church, to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that we might be holy and without blemish. And then Jude 24 and 25, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory and great joy, with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all times and now and forever. Amen. And all God's people said, this is a good spot to stop on. We're going to take the Lord's Supper here in just a moment. Next week, we'll look at how is, it, how is this fitting displayed. It's, it's displayed in Jesus' suffering. It's displayed in Jesus' death. It's displayed in Jesus' temptation. What you will see next week if you come back is this, that you can trust Jesus 
because you will never go through anything that he did not first go through. You will never go through anything that he did not first go through. And he didn't just go through it, but listen to me, he crushed a way for you to go through it. There's a story of a young lady, she was driving on a train, and you know how trains are, they go around curves, and she's going around a curve, and she sees this big old mountain there, and she starts getting really nervous, and she's like, mommy, mommy, we're gonna run into the mountain, mommy, we're gonna run into the mountain. And the curve, the train curves around, and it goes through a, it goes through a tunnel right through the middle of that mountain. And then she goes around a couple more curves and they see this big, huge body of water and she says, mommy, mommy, mommy. She says, we're gonna go in the water, we're gonna go in the water. And then the next thing you know, that train curves around and it goes across the bridge and goes over the water. The little girl looks at her mom and says, mom, you know what I know? She says, I know somebody went in front of us. You know what we know? We know somebody went in front of us. And it was painful, it was hard but it made it possible for us to go to. Father, thank you so much. We are humbled. We are humbled by your presence and by your love for us. We know we don't deserve it, Lord. We are, we are vessels that deserve your wrath and yet you've shown us mercy and grace that exceeds anything that we could ever imagine. We thank you for it. We pray, Lord, as we enter into this time of taking this memorable ceremony to remember what you did for us, that we will be, our hearts will be full of faith and love for you and that we will know what it represents and glorify you in Christ's name. Amen.